Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Today we're tuning into a House Judiciary Committee hearing titled Intellectual Property and Strategic Competition with China. This is the third part of a series of hearings on the threat the Chinese government poses to U.S. economic and national security interests. The focus is on AI, intellectual property theft, and cybersecurity breaches. At the first hearing, committee chair Daryl Issa said of China, they will use both legal and illegal means in order to gain technology that they take to China to often use to create secondary patents, meaning steal the technology from here and patent it back here again, then sue here. Tactics like these are part of what led the House to conduct this series of hearings in the first place. Let's tune into this third chapter in the U.S. government's inquiry into Chinese intellectual property rights abuses and AI. First of all, for everyone in attendance, especially our witnesses, I want to thank you for your indulgence as we have had uh, a series of missteps and delays in what I believe is one of the most important uh, hearings that this subcommittee will have this year. Our panel of experts understand all too well the critical threat faced by the communist Chinese uh, government. I always say the communist Chinese government so as to differentiate it from the government in Taiwan which at one time was known for disregarding patents, trademarks, and the like, but has done an about-face over the last several decades and now is very much part of a community that is, that is responsible in its actions toward intellectual property. With the advent and growth of artificial and uh, regenerative artificial intelligence, one of the key activities that we see the Chinese government doing is, in fact, predictive use of AI in order to both steal real intellectual property and also to box off and, in fact, deny real inventors their intellectual property. The cyber warfare conducted by the Chinese uh, government is not new. In fact, the Chinese military itself has divisions that are, exist both to steal military secrets and uh, commercial activities. In the coming years, AI will pose uh, a transformative uh, relationship to all industries, but it also will particularly affect cybersecurity. A supercomputer that can break any code, a supercomputer that can anticipate changes, and the like can in fact completely neuter existing cybersecurity systems. As a result, AI will be fighting against AI in cybersecurity. We will hear shortly, <coughs> we will hear shortly if, if China wins the cyber AI rounds, uh, arms race, their ability to steal technology and harm not just our country, but the free world will, in fact, be permanent. To be sure, American AI development must be done carefully, ethically, and with respect for the values that make us different than the Chinese adversaries. 
But today's hearing should make clear to everyone how important the 21st century arms race is, not only to Republicans and Democrats, but to all Americans, and particularly to those who want to be the inventors and the innovators of the future. I hope all my colleagues on both sides of the aisle will join with me in seeing the importance of urging the administration, and it, my, my, uh, my opening statement says to shift their priorities, and I will modify by that by saying to enhance and expand their priorities to meet the challenge. All of us must come together as AI users, creators, technology companies, and yes, the government to meet this challenge. No less than the American way and the free world advancements we've had since World War II are at stake. I want to thank all my witnesses for being here today. And with that, I recognize the ranking member, Mr. Johnson, for his opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this important hearing. And thank you to our bipartisan slate of witnesses for being willing to share your perspectives with the committee today. And, um, and thank you for your forbearance in our having to postpone this hearing in the past. Uh, Americans cannot pick up a newspaper without a near daily reminder that artificial intelligence, or AI, is transforming the world as we know it. With a few keystrokes, a layperson can generate an image indistinguishable from a photograph that can make a business plan based on AI-driven supply chain predictive analysis or write code for a new application. Langston Hughes may have died over 50 years ago, but sitting here today, I can ask ChatGPT to write an original poem in his style. AI innovations have sparked necessary debate about intellectual property protections for both the owners of the massive quantities of data used to train AI models and the authors of final products of AI-assisted works. But the disruptions to society don't end there. Looming behind labor disputes lie questions about the future of work when AI is used by the powers that be to replace writers, technicians, and auto workers. I'm committed to working with my colleagues across the aisle to protect creators, inventors, and intellectual property rights overall while encouraging innovation and invention. But we are here today to talk about just one of the many ripple effects of AI innovation, how AI is being used and can be used in the future to augment China's strategy towards the United States. As a global leader in AI innovation, the People's Republic of China, or PRC, is in a unique place to deploy AI before many other nations. But if the PRC chooses to use AI to increase its authoritarian hold over its own people, to advance its cyber espionage strategy, or to interfere in its neighbor's elections, such actions will undermine competition and innovation, not just in China, but around the world. We are tuned in to the House Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Courts, Intellectual Property, and the Internet's hearing titled Intellectual Property and Strategic 
competition with China. This hearing is focusing on IP theft, intellectual property theft, that is cybersecurity, as well as artificial intelligence, and the role it plays in yeah, undermining the US, US national security interests as well as uh, US economic interests. And we heard there about the scale of this risk and this threat, uh, you know, potentially talking about how permanent the, the transfer of power could be from the to the Chinese Communist Party if they do succeed in their efforts at, um, you know, s submission of the U.S. through AI, through all intellectual property theft and all these other means that we're looking at today. That's right. You mentioned the supercomputer. You know, we're talking about a race for uh, yeah technological capabilities that dramatically outweigh what's currently out there in the world today. And whatever nation is able to acquire these capabilities will simply have dominance over all the other nations and and really just have a sense of have control. Um, and the concern, you know, why does that matter? Um, why does it matter if, if China has unilateral control or information dominance or technology dominance? Well, we're talking about a totalitarian regime that persecutes its own people. You know, if you criticize the Chinese government in China, uh, your life could be at risk. And not only that, for many Chinese citizens who've left China, they're also uh, often fear the control of the Chinese Communist Party, which extends far beyond its borders, as we will likely find out. But um, there's there's a lot of ways that we'll look into. But um, one of those is uh, threats, you know, threats that people abroad get. We've seen the Chinese Communist Party setting up um, hidden police stations, even within New York City, uh, where they monitor and surveil Chinese citizens who are living abroad and their families, and they obviously have some sway there in terms of threatening family members who live back home and things like that. That's right. And in terms of the intellectual uh, property threat posed by China, intellect, the threat of uh, having our intellectual property stolen by China, we um, you know, have a quote from Evan Anderson, the CEO of uh, Invent IP, a strategic news service initiative, he told the Epic Times, the most undiscussed issue that presents a bigger problem that people pretend doesn't exist is that by the Chinese law, um, companies cannot refuse to work for the Chinese Communist Party. And he's talking about China's national intelligence law here, where the Chinese government actually has the right by its own dictate to demand its citizens, even citizens abroad, cooperate with the intelligence agencies there right. uh, to collect information um, and send it back home to China. So a lot of this is actually strategic and it's well planned out by the Communist Party and it it's, goes under the radar for, for us, but that's the purpose of this hearing, I suppose, to, to bring it all out in the air and then be able to create some policies around this and really push back. So Exactly. And now we're about to take a quick commercial break. But we'll be back with the House Judiciary Committee's hearing on intellectual property and strategic competition with China. It's the third chapter in a series of hearings on the threat that China poses to the U.S. national security and economic interests. Focus today is AI, cybersecurity, and intellectual property theft. When we come back.
Welcome back. We're tuning in to the House Judiciary Committee's hearing on intellectual property and strategic competition with China. Let's dive back into this hearing dealing with China's use of AI, cyber attacks, and intellectual property theft to undermine U.S. national security and U.S. economic interests. Since the PRC entered the World Trade Organization 20 years ago, it has endeavored to gain American data, intellectual property, and our nation's secrets. Cyber intrusions from the Chinese government or affiliated groups have successfully infiltrated the United States Department of Justice, our military bases, and businesses across the country. The adoption of AI only increases China's ability to continue these tactics. So far, China has tested swarms of AI-powered drones, used AI-generated propaganda to target U.S. politics, and stolen AI technology from U.S. companies. Experts disagree as to how far China has advanced in AI development. Indeed, many argue that AI innovations are happening so quickly that it is difficult to know what the technology can and cannot do at any given time. But there is a consensus that the United States, with its broad, away of, a broad array of businesses, strong intellectual property protections, and widespread investment in scientific research, is, a, is ahead of most other nations. Many Americans believe that it is incumbent on the United States to lead. I'm one of them. But leading in development alone is not sufficient. The European Union this summer took steps to regulate artificial intelligence by passing draft legislation that the EU is calling, quote, the world's first comprehensive AI law, end quote. Even China has issued interim guidelines to regulate the use of generative AI in theory, if not in practice. Of the leading nations on AI, the United States stands out for its absence of basic rules of the road. American technology companies and industry leaders have called on the U.S. government to regulate AI and curtail the privacy and security risks posed by the technology. I'm eager to hear from our witnesses whether Congress can properly regulate AI while allowing the innovation to flourish. But we should not stop there. To succeed, we need international collaboration and cooperation in the form of a multinational agreement on privacy and security. It is only when the leading nations on AI, including China, agree to AI intellectual property privacy, and security principles that we can take full advantage of the benefits AI promises. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses, and I yield back the balance of my time. I thank the gentleman. We now recognize the ranking, ranking member of the full committee, Mr. Nadler, for his opening statement. <coughs> thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this important hearing today. Like any new technology, AI can be used for good purposes, or for bad purposes, and it has startling political potential. For example, using AI, one could generate political ads, convincing political ads, showing Jim Jordan endorsing Joe Biden, or me endorsing Donald Trump. During our first hearing of this series, 
I noted that the government of the People's Republic of China, or PRC, has both manipulated the free market system and used outright illegal means to acquire other nations' intellectual property. In a field that largely relies on players to act in good faith, acquisition of new technologies through theft, cyber espionage, and other forms of subterfuge is part of China's broader national security and economic strategy. In no other field of innovation is this truer than in that of artificial intelligence. The raw material of AI is data. This is why entities backed by the PRC are taking steps to acquire massive quantities of data from the United States and its allies, and they are using all means at their disposal to do so. Within the past decade, we have seen well-publicized data thefts originating in China, such as the 2015 data breach at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, the SolarWinds hack back in 2020, and the Microsoft Exchange hack in 2021. But the thefts that make headlines are just a small fraction of the total. According to a 2022 report by CrowdStrike, which is represented here today, China was behind 67% of cyber attacks between mid-2020 and mid-2021. Because the Chinese government exercises authoritarian control over the country's economy, many companies in the PRC are state-affiliated, maintain close ties to military and state security services, and are, are susceptible to state coercion, or all three. This blurs the lines between public and private collection of Americans' data. Chinese-affiliated actors are buying data from commercial data brokers. They are also collecting data on U.S. persons through Chinese-owned software applications such as TikTok and medical diagnostic platforms like the DNA sequencing company BGI. Even as the Chinese government attempts to gain access to as much data as possible from the United States and its allies, Chinese officials have taken legal and regulatory steps to limit access to data that originates in China. And they have implemented controls that prevent the export and use of such data outside the PRC. Their goal is to gain an unfair advantage over other nations, first by obtaining greater quantities of information, and then by using that information to create new AI capabilities. The widespread acquisition and deployment of AI by China has implications for the world at large. Using the power of AI, a hacker can scour a network for so-called zero-day vulnerabilities in seconds. An espionage agent tasked with spreading disinformation can create a video that appears to show a domestic political dissident or a foreign political leader confessing to a crime or endorsing the wrong candidate, as I said before. You're watching the House Judiciary's hearing on intellectual property and strategic competition with China. It's the third hearing in a series of hearings conducted by the Subcommittee on Courts, Intellectual Property, and the Internet. At the first hearing, Committee Chair Daryl Issa said of China, they will use both legal and illegal means in order to gain technology that they take to China to often use to create secondary patents, meaning steal the technology from here and patent it here again, then sue here. Tactics like these are part of what led the House, of, the House to conduct these series of hearings in the first place. And, you know, we just heard from Hank Johnson, the congressman, he was talking about how these cyber intrusions are, um, yeah, adopted by China as part of their uh, strategy to actually undermine the U.S. 
economic interests to gain that kind of dominance over um, the U.S., which is you know quite dominant in the world as it stands. Yeah. A lot of that theft actually has been um, caught and recorded according to a 2017 IP Commission report um, by the National Bureau of Asian Research. The annual cost of IP theft to the U.S. economy could be as high as $600 billion. And it's, according to many U.S. Uh, officials, it's one of the largest transfers of wealth in human history. Yeah, that's just enormous. Uh, Congressman Jerry, Jerry Nadler was saying, you know, AI can be used for good or bad. He said AI could, use, could be used to create an image of him endorsing Donald Trump or of Jim Jordan endorsing Joe Biden, which is, you know, kind of funny, but uh, dangerous at the same time. Certainly, and, and uh, destroying the, the sense of trust, you, really, amongst people if you, if you can't even decide what's true or not. Although exactly. at the moment, it, you can kind of tell, I think, but in the future, you, we really don't know what AI will be capable of. That's right. And now the Chinese regime has also been accused of collecting user data via apps like TikTok. Canadian lawmakers grilled TikTok executives at a hearing this week. Among other things, they wanted to know how TikTok and possibly the Chinese Communist Party handles user data. Servers, where are they located? Where does this data flow through? And uh, specifically for as Canadians, where does a Canadian on TikTok, where, where, where does that data end up? Where is it accessed, both when they're in Canada and if they happen to travel to other jurisdictions? Another member of parliament later asked if a parent company in China has access to user data. A senior executive for TikTok said they do, in fact, have access. Chinese law states that the regime can access information if it chooses to. Lawmakers also asked if the CCP makes use of this specific law. A TikTok executive responded saying he's not an expert in Chinese law. That's right. And we know that TikTok has also been used. There have been instances where, where kids have actually died doing these, these TikTok challenges right. where they're, you know, they're competing to do something extremely dangerous. And mm -hmm. I think one of them was like plugging something, like sticking your finger into an outlet. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. And it can seem like chance, okay, oh, these are just kids. But when you look at it, there is actually strategy behind this. You know, the equivalent, TikTok's equivalent within China, actually somehow doesn't have much content like that in it. It's all, I'm, I'm told, it's all um, content that really promotes the advancement of the minds of people using it, rather than this kind of degenerative, destructive stuff that we're hearing about um, with, in the West. That's right, and that's uh, the parent company is called ByteDance, and we've heard um, a lot of criticism about them. Um, we heard from Jerry Nadler, the congressman. He was saying that uh, China uses illegal means to access IP. Uh, he said it's part of their their strategy, actually, to uh, gain dominance. China's stated goal is to become the uh, global hegemon uh, over the next few decades. Yeah. And when you think about it, um, you know, many people call this the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government, but um, it is a dictatorship. It's uh, in close ties with the military, and the military is um, running a lot of these or s deeply connected with a lot of these uh, programs to infiltrate 
the rest of the world in a way. Right, and the, and the Chinese military and the Chinese uh, people unfortunately are, are connected because Chinese law dictates that the people have to cooperate with Chinese intelligence agencies. We're about to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be back with the House Judiciary Hearing on Intellectual Property and Strategic Competition That's with China. That's the third chapter in a series of hearings on the threat that China poses to U.S. national security and economic interests. The focus is AI, cybersecurity, and intellectual property theft. Stay tuned. Thank you for staying with us. Today we're tuning in to a House Judiciary Committee hearing titled Intellectual Property and Strategic Competition with China. The third part of a series of hearings on the threat that the Chinese Communist Party opposes to U.S. economic and national security interests. The focus is on AI, cybersecurity breaches, as well as intellectual property theft. At the first hearing, Committee Chair Daryl Issa said of China, they will use both legal and illegal means in order to gain technology that they take to China to often use to create secondary patents, meaning steal the technology from here and patent it back here again, then sue us here. Incredible. Tactics like these are part of what led the House to conduct this series of hearings in the first place. So let's tune into this third chapter in the U.S. government's inquiry into Chinese intellectual property rights abuses and AI. A police state can track persecuted groups and quell dissent, as the Chinese government has already done with members of its Uyghur minority. Until now, the PRC's influence campaigns have mostly targeted its own people, focusing on sources of internal friction, such as the status of Taiwan and COVID-19. For example, the DNI found that China did not attempt to influence the 2020 presidential elections. But many experts agree that posture is swiftly changing, which means that the threat posed by China's development of AI is growing. Recently, the New York Times reported that in an attempt to sow discord within the United States, China used AI-generated images to spread conspiracy theories about the Maui wildfires that caused the deaths of nearly 100 Americans. Whether these particular deepfakes were successful remains to be seen, but the danger is unmistakable. Addressing that danger begins with understanding the full nature of China's artificial intelligence strategy and the steps Congress can take to help address the threats posed by it. For that reason, this series of hearings is absolutely crucial. At the same time, I would also like to add that I appreciate the tactful manner with which these hearings have been conducted. Even as we protect our national security and intellectual property, we continue to seek common ground with China on issues that affect both our countries, such as fighting climate change. Even when we express deep concern over actions taken by the authoritarian Chinese government, we recognize that those actions do not represent the will of the Chinese people. The United States, meanwhile, is home to an estimated 17.8 million Asian Americans, including many residents of the Upper West and Upper East Sides of Manhattan. Like so many lawmakers, I have heard from Asian American constituents 
who are terrified by the rise in anti-Asian hate and anti-Asian violence that we have seen as friction grows between the PRC and the United States. I'm glad that our hearings have called attention to the very real national security and economic challenges America faces <coughs> from the policies of the Chinese government without demonizing the more than one billion people who live in China or the millions of Asian Americans who make our communities and country stronger every day. I am hopeful and confident that our important work will continue, not just in this hearing, but in the weeks and months to come. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I yield back the balance of my time. I thank the gentleman. <coughs> Without objection, all, all other opening statements will be included in the record. It is now my honor to introduce our distinguished panel of witnesses. Dr. William Hannes is the lead analyst at Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Prior to joining C CSET, or CSET, he was a member of the the senior, sir, intel, senior Intelligence Service at the Central Intelligence Agency, where he served as an expert on advanced technical projects and was the three-time recipient of the McCone Award for Technological Innovation. Dr. Hannes has also served as Assistant Professor of, uh, of Chinese at Georgetown, while concurrently serving with the CIA's open source enterprise. We're also joined by Dr. John Brennan. Dr. Brennan is the general manager, public sector at Scale AI. He has 25 years of experience across the public and private sectors and has developed and led programs in cloud computing, data science in support of intelligence collection and analysis, cybersecurity, new product innovation, and supply chain. He is also served our country in the United States Army with the Central Intelligence Agency and the Office of the Director of National uh, Intelligence. We're joined also by Dr. Benjamin Jensen. Dr. Jensen is a senior fellow for future war gaming and strategy in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is also a professor of strategic studies at the Marine Corps University School of Advanced Warfighting. Dr. Jensen has worked with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency of the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, NATO, and the U.S. Army, and a range of other government agencies and foundations to develop war games and scenario-driven exercises. Mr. Robert Sheldon, Mr. Sheldon, is the Senior Director of Public Policy and Strategy at CrowdStrike. He is he ha, where he leads corporate engagement on a variety of U.S. federal, state, and local government policies, programs, and initiatives. He runs CrowdStrike's election security initiatives, serves as its company's representative to the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative and IT Sector Coordinating Council, and heads the Congressional Affairs Practice. Mr. Sheldon also serves as an adjunct professor lecturer on international cybersecurity policy at the American University School of International Service. We seldom have this much, no, rephrase this, on this side of the dais, we never have this much intellect 
and even among our distinguished witnesses, you all stand out. Pursuant to committee rules, I would ask that you please all rise now to take the oath. Raise your right hand. Do you, do you swear or affirm under the penalty of perjury that the testimony you are about to give will be the truth and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief, so help you God? Please be seated. Let the record reflect that all witnesses answered in the affirmative. We are currently tuning in to the uh, House Judiciary Committee's hearing on intellectual property and strategic competition with China with a focus on IP theft, intellectual property theft, cybersecurity, and artificial intelligence. And the way that China is using these technologies to um, gain dominance over the United States. And it does seem like a credible threat, at least so far, and from what we know, the Chinese military is involved. AI, of course, there's this race for the expansion and development of AI, and um, what we just heard was this conundrum that we're facing of needing to develop AI in a moral and ethical way within our own free society, but also to keep up with the Chinese Communist Party and their use of AI um, and their ambitions, considering their ambitions to, you know, to compete with the U.S. and overcome the U.S. That's right. It's, it's, it's a tricky situation because we want to, you know, the U.S. wants to make sure that it's um, following international standards and um, at the same time competing with China, whereas, you know, China has historically um, broken from international norms, yes. and uh, with that, they they take liberties that the U.S. wouldn't necessarily take, and so literally you know, breaking laws and and agreements that they've publicly made, and then denying them many times. Um, we can see that in many ways, um, but that will come out here. We also heard about the importance of data collection, and some some of the time that is legally done, and some of the time it's not. Um, but that is also important as a tool to use for AI. And um, what we're looking at is how and whether the Chinese Communist Party is involved in stealing data from Western countries in order to to leverage that information against Western countries. Right. And why is uh, China, the Chinese government collecting data so uh, dangerous in the first place? Well, in Xinjiang, where uh, there's a high Uyghur Muslim population, they use AI uh, and paired with surveillance technology to um, track and map the facial structures of the Uyghur Muslim population there so that they can identify Uyghur Muslims as they're walking around on the streets, um, you know, it, they're, they're a target of the government. Um, Scary right. stuff. And an example of what this regime is capable of and considering their ambitions beyond their own borders, something that we really all should be paying attention to for the uh, human rights abuse that it is, but also for the broader implications. We have the committee chair um, of the first hearing, Representative Mike Gallagher, saying that this is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century, and the most fundamental freedoms are at stake. 
a really, really stark warning there, and it really shows what this hearing is about and how important it is. We did see also um, the uh, the the ways that this plays out in um, American society, but we can we can take a look at that another time. We're about to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be back with the House Judiciary Committee's hearing on intellectual property and strategic competition with China. This is the third chapter in a series of hearings on the threat China poses to U.S. national security and economic interests. The focus is AI, cybersecurity, and intellectual property theft. We've heard from Congressman Jerry Nadler, as well as uh, Congressman Hank Johnson, on these crucial issues that you know really constitute the um, the way the next hundred or even a thousand years. Um, of human civilization will play out. We'll have more after the break. Welcome back. You're watching the House Judiciary Committee's hearing on intellectual property and strategic competition with China. Watching testimonies about the way the Chinese Communist Party uses AI, cyber technology, and IP theft to try to overtake the U.S. and other adversaries threatening U.S. national security and U.S. economic interests. Let's tune into the hearing. Please know that, please know that you're, as witnesses, all of your uh, written statements and collateral material you wish to give us will be included in the record. So with that, I would ask that you limit your uh, actual oral statements initially at five minutes to allow plenty of time for, for everyone to speak. I will mention, and I apologize, that there has been scheduled a conference uh, for uh, the majority at 11 o'clock. That does not mean we'll necessarily adjourn at that moment, but it does mean that members will be a, a little rushed and we'll try to get as many in as we can before that. So with that, uh, we go to Dr. Hannes first for your five minutes. You're recognized. Chairman Issa, Ranking Member Johnson, distinguished members of the subcommittee and staff, I'm grateful for the opportunity to join today's hearing on two topics that have fascinated and frankly terrified me over the past decades, namely China's use of foreign, uh, of foreign technology to fuel its science and technology enterprise, and China's drive to become the world's leader in artificial intelligence. I'm a founding member of Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, where I work with a small team to identify threats posed by Chinese AI. Uh, prior to that, as stated, I was with the CIA, where I managed open source exploitation of Chinese S&T materials and build a program to track China's transfer of U.S. technologies. Uh, these efforts culminated in two books on Chinese industrial espionage and China's quest for foreign technology, which became de facto handbooks, and the recent volume, co-authored volume, Chinese Power and Artificial Intelligence, a comprehensive look at Chinese AI. China's technology transfer programs date from 1956 and cover every imaginable practice and venue. The link with AI, besides China's use of its collection apparatus to tap global AI know-how, is the likelihood that China will soon, if it's not already, use AI for cyber exploits to further its transfer agenda. An unholy marriage in which advances in the one promote progress in the other. 
multiplying existing threats to U.S. and allied security. I'll, I'll talk about these three in turn. First, Chinese technology transfer practices. Uh, it's impossible to condense some 700 pages of book narrative, terabytes of unclassified data, a mile-long list of known cases, and two decades of horror stories into this brief space. Uh, my testimony accordingly is limited to an overview of how the Chinese transfer system operates with emphasis on so-called extra-legal or gray area transfers, maneuvers, at which China excels and which are devilishly hard to track. Uh, Chinese artificial intelligence, my team does not share the perception that China's alleged, alleged lag in generative AI, uh, that is large language models, absolves us from concern because A, they're not that far behind. B, China need not be at the cusp to adapt these models wherever it wishes. Uh, C, it can literally beg, borrow, and steal what it needs to be competitive. And finally, and, and I, I think most importantly, China is aggressively pursuing alternative paths to advanced AI uh, aimed at artificial general intelligence and a first mover advantage. Uh, China's use of tech transfer to further its AI program. This is two-sided. Um, while respecting China's homegrown efforts to build advanced AI, which we have come to greatly admire, they do a lot of good indigenous work, China has not shied from acquiring AI technology from abroad. My team has documented Chinese, China's use of each of its acquisition venues to advance its AI program. Legal venues of support provided by U.S. multinationals are on a scale that shocks even this jaundiced observer. A case against China's efforts to relieve the world of proprietary technology is easier to make now than years before, as evidenced by today's hearing. But myths die hard, such as the notion that China can't create uh, in AI or other high-tech disciplines, they can. Uh, that it will always be behind, that's not necessarily true. Or that exposure to democracy will lead to responsible behavior. We all know how that experiment turned out. The United States intelligence community, USIC, of which I was a part, and to that extent responsible, should also be held accountable for its failure to seriously pursue so-called science and technology, S&T, intelligence. Um, that is, identifying and monitoring foreign S&T threats, and for relegating open source intelligence to an enabler of classified collection rather than regarding open source as an entity worth pursuing in its own right. In sum, I'm, I'm arguing that you can't make good policy if you don't have good data. Uh, our efforts to monitor foreign science and technology, inherently an open source um, exercise, are frankly pathetic. They're worse than useless because these, these cosmetic efforts are seen as evidence of measures in place where there are few or none. China, by contrast, runs a world-class open source S&T intelligence network with a staff by their admission of more than 100,000 professionals. That is light years ahead of us. Accordingly, I recommend establishing an entity within the U.S. government, uh, for lack of a better name, a National Science and Technology Analysis Center. Outside the USIC, or if that is impossible, as a standalone unit directly within the, under, under the Directorate of uh, National Intelligence to collect, analyze, forecast, 
give timely policy support and, as needed, help mitigate or interdict foreign S&T threats. We're tuned into the hearing on intellectual property and strategic competition with China by the, um, the House Judiciary Committee. We just heard from William Hannes, PhD, who is a lead analyst at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown University, also a former senior intelligence service member at the Central Intelligence Agency. And yet he's talking about the threat that China poses to the United States, to the free world in general, through artificial intelligence, um, intellectual property threat, and really how um, artificial intelligence has significantly magnified um, China's intellectual property theft capabilities. And how long this has been going on. He did say that China's technological transfer programs started at least as early as 1956. That's right. 1956. And that goes back to about seven years after the um, dominance, after the Chinese Communist Party achieved dominance in China and took over in 1949. And, um, you know, at that time we just saw all kinds of slaughter uh, of the Chinese people. Um, and, and that kind of um, dark history um, isn't just history, which is one of the reasons why um, we're so concerned about the possibility of China gaining, yeah, technological dominance over the U.S. through artificial intelligence. Uh, Dr. Hannes talked about how um, there's this notion of um, the first mover advantage, he said, where whoever takes the first move in a certain new technology can gain dominance in that. And that's one of China's strategies with artificial intelligence is to get early advantage. And in a way, while the U.S. is still ahead and leading the way in many areas of intellectual property and technology development, um, you know, the U.S. has had this view of China or stance toward China of um, trying to help them come into the international community uh, in, and join the free societies um, through trade and through through acceptance in, uh, in many different fronts within society. But uh, this hearing is important because we get to see some of the ways that that has in a way backfired. That's right. Yeah, we actually saw a major change to that sort of policy in during the Trump administration. There was a speech that uh, Mike Pompeo gave in um, 2020, basically articulating how you know we were uh, the United States and the West naively mm, thought that through trade, uh, the West could positively influence the communist leadership of China, but it, it's almost like the opposite has happened. You know, and coming back to intellectual property theft, it said that the annual cost of IP theft to the U.S. economy is as much as uh, $600 billion, which has been called the largest uh, pr uh, transfer of wealth in, in human history. Yeah, it's just incredible. And um, one that there's just no way to recoup that, but we certainly can see it as a warning for the future threats when we're looking at the development of AI and the uses that AI, for example, is going to be put towards within China under the Chinese regime that we already know of. Um, but who knows as well in terms of what AI will be capable of in the future. 
That's right. And this concludes our coverage of the House Judiciary Committee's third hearing on intellectual property and strategic competition with China. That's a series of hearings on the threat that China poses to U.S. national security and economic interests. So we'll have more news after this short break. An unexpected twist in the race for House Speaker. Representative Jim Jordan may be ditching his plans to hold a third vote for speakership today. What does this mean for the leaderless House? Palestinians in Gaza are desperate for drinking water. Desalination and wastewater facilities are largely out of commission, and time is running out. Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty says one of its Russian-American journalists has been detained in Russia. She's charged with failing to register as a foreign agent. The Taliban making a bid to formally join China's Belt and Road Initiative. How will this move affect international politics? What are the impacts of China's intellectual property theft on the United States? NTD business host Don Ma lays it out for us. Representative Jim Jordan may be ditching his plans to hold a third vote for House speakership today. The Republican nominee failed to secure the gavel for a second time yesterday. NTD's Melina Weiskopf joins us with updates from Capitol Hill. Melina, what's the latest here? Hi, Steph. So as of right now, House Republicans are meeting behind closed doors to figure out their next steps. The original plan was for Jim Jordan to go ahead and hold that third ballot today. But we're seeing reports indicating that he might not go in this direction and may cancel this third vote in an attempt to give himself more time to shore up the support he would need if he does choose to take this to the floor again for another vote. Now, this is after yesterday he failed to, to secure the gavel yet again on that second vote, um, and he actually failed to even secure any more votes than he had the day before. He actually won 199 votes. That's a net loss of one for Jordan yesterday, showing that his progress is actually going a bit backwards. There were some members who flipped to support him, but there were also some members yesterday who flipped to oppose him. And interestingly enough, of those members who did change their opinions of him yesterday and voted against him, some of them say they're receiving violent threats. For example, Congresswoman Mary Miller Meeks, uh, she, she sent us a statement saying that she's received credible death threats and a barrage of threatening calls. And she said, one thing I cannot stomach or support is a bully. Now, Jim Jordan has since responded to these reports of violent threats saying this. It never happened. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's just wrong. That's yeah. wrong. We don't want it to happen to anyone, any American, anybody, any member of Congress. This is just wrong. So as of right now, we are just waiting to see what is Jim Jordan's next step here? Is he in fact canceling that vote today? That's something that our team is actually actively working to confirm right now. And also, even if he is delaying this vote, will he choose to go even further and just step aside and let someone else have a shot at the race? Yeah, some big and important questions there. Thank you so much, Melina. We'll keep an eye on this. And 
That question still hangs in the air. What will happen next for the speaker's seat? Earlier today, I spoke with the Epic Times reporter Lawrence Wilson, who is following this closely. Let's see that now. Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us. So what's behind the resistance to Jim Jordan? Is this group asking for some concessions? That apparently is what happened when Kevin McCarthy was elected in January. Yeah, this seems a little different. I don't think it's that they're looking to extract some concession for how he'll operate as a speaker or as happened with McCarthy, but uh, they just don't really want Jim Jordan to be the speaker. Uh, remember, 18 Republicans are from what we might call purple districts. These are districts that voted for the majority for Joe Biden in 2020. There are 17 Republican seats that are considered likely to flip or at least a toss-up uh, for the 24 election. So some are reluctant to go with a candidate who's known as a hard right-wing fighter. So that's one factor. Another is that some are complaining about pressure tactics used against them, phone calls, emails, social media messages, which they say have included credible death threats. Uh, now, Jordan, to be fair, has denounced that practice, but there are some members who are kind of dug in saying we're not going to be bullied into voting for a particular candidate. So there's some pretty strong resistance there. Yeah, that does sound like strong resistance on both sides, I suppose. Now, more Republicans are talking about the idea of temporarily giving Speaker pro temp Patrick McHenry additional powers. Does that seem yeah. more likely to happen now that we're into a third week without a Speaker? Well, maybe. Yeah, as you say, there are more Republicans talking about it. Uh, David Joyce of Ohio has a resolution ready to go to that effect. Uh, others say, look, this is kicking the can down the road. We have to come together to choose a speaker. We might as well do it now and fight it out uh, till we get somebody. So it's really uncertain. Now, Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, has said he, he's open to a compromise that would allow the House to open and keep running. But there's a, a but, as always, but it has to be only after Jim Jordan is definitively out of the speaker's race. The Democrats don't want to see a scenario where Jim Jordan just gets another two or three months to campaign, basically. And now the question that everyone's really asking is, where are we, when, when are we going to have a speaker? Do you, do you have any idea on that? I think if you knew that, you could you could probably go to the bookmakers and make a lot of money on right. because it's very uncertain. Uh, but it seems like it must be soon. There's a lot of frustration within the Republican caucus. Everybody wants to get back to work. Remember what's sitting on the table. Support for Israel. They want to vote on a resolution. They're probably going to be asked to put some money behind that at some point. Uh, they have to keep grinding away on appropriations that that continuing resolution is up on the 17th of next month. Mm -hmm. And Republicans really want to do more work on border security. So everybody's looking for an off-ramp. Uh, just mm -hmm. a question of what it will be and how soon they can find it. And we'll keep our eyes trained on that for sure to find out. Lawrence Wilson, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell has pleaded guilty in the Georgia election case. Fulton County prosecutors are recommending she get six years probation. She also has to write an apology letter to Georgia voters.
In return, Powell has to testify in future trials, perhaps including former President Trump's. Powell has admitted she had a role in breaching election systems in a rural Georgia county in 2021. Powell's plea came just days before she was set to go to trial on charges including racketeering and conspiracy to commit election fraud. Former President Donald Trump and other defendants have pleaded not guilty. Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty says one of its Russian-American journalists has been detained in Russia. Editor Alsu Kermasheva was charged with failing to register as a foreign agent. She traveled to Russia on May 20th for a family emergency. When trying to leave at the end of that trip, she was detained and her passports were confiscated. The charge of not registering as a foreign agent carries Cold War connotations of espionage. It's used in Russia to label organizations, journalists and activists deemed to be engaging in political activity with foreign support. The Committee to Protect Journalists said Kurashameva could be sentenced to up to five years in prison. She's the second American journalist to be detained in Russia this year. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich has been held since March on espionage charges. The journal vehemently deny the allegations. Coming up, the European Parliament votes for a humanitarian pause in Gaza. What are they saying about the Israel-Hamas war? A longtime State Department official has resigned over White House policy on the Israel-Hamas conflict. He cited the suffering of the people of Israel and Palestine. Thank you for staying with us. The European Parliament today voted for a humanitarian pause in Gaza. The legislative body condemned Hamas's attacks and recognized Israel's right to defend itself in compliance with international law. The intelligence community assesses that Israel is not to blame for the explosion of the hospital in Gaza. Members called for the immediate release of all hostages kidnapped by Hamas as well. The EU Parliament is asking for more humanitarian assistance for Gaza. Lawmakers also called for an independent investigation into the hospital blast in the Gaza Strip. Israel says Palestinian Islamic Jihad fired the rocket that hit the hospital. Hamas said Thursday that an Israeli airstrike killed a top leader in the house, the head of the terrorist organization's national security forces, and his family members. A group of Republican senators are demanding that aid for Israel and Ukraine be allocated in separate bills. They sent a letter to the upper chamber's leadership. The letter comes as the Biden administration is expected to request $100 billion in aid. Those funds would go towards supporting Taiwan as well. Several state Senate Rep Senate, several Senate Republicans also want stronger policies to address illegal immigration at the southern border as part of any funding deal. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza, excuse me, several Senate Republicans also want stronger policies as part of any funding deal. New Jersey Senator 
Bob Menendez has raised nearly $275,000 for his legal defense after federal prosecutors charged him with bribery in September. The Democratic lawmaker was indicted for accepting a Mercedes-Benz, 13 gold bars, and more than $560,000 in cash. That was allegedly in exchange for aiding the government of Egypt in trying to impede the criminal prosecution of a friend. Menendez and his wife, Nadine Menendez, pleaded not guilty to the charges lodged against them last month. Last week, prosecutors also charged Menendez and his wife for allegedly conspiring to act as Egyptian foreign agents. North Carolina GOP lawmakers have proposed new boundary lines for congressional districts starting in 2024. The proposal could threaten the re-election of several current Democrat members of the House of Representatives. Candidate filings for the 2024 election are expected to begin in early December. North Carolina's 14-seat congressional delegation is, current, is currently evenly split with seven Democrats and seven Republicans. But Republican lawmakers have proposed reworking the districts, unveiling two proposed maps on October 18th. The district proposals would reportedly split each of the state's largest counties into as many as three districts, some of which pull in more Republican suburban and rural voters. San Francisco is prepping for the upcoming APEC summit next month. The Secret Service and the San Francisco Police Department gave a briefing on security plans yesterday. The Secret Service says the FBI and local law enforcement have been conducting security drills for months now. The number one priority for the United States Secret Service, as well as everyone standing here today, is the safety of the world leaders, the attendees coming to the APEC summit, but as well as the general public here in San Francisco while the APEC summit is, is here in San Francisco. The 21-member APEC forum will take place from November 14th through the 17th. Police Chief Bill Scott said San Francisco was excited to be hosting the summit. The Secret Service will be lead the agency for all security operations related to the summit. Authorities will release a map with various road closures throughout the city. The number of UFO reports to the U.S. government is on the rise. Dozens of reports were received each month and thousands more are expected in the near future. That's according to the director of the office established to investigate the incidents. The majority of the reports turned out to be balloons or drones, but some require further investigation and might even be objects used to spy on the U.S. One reason for the increase in reports is the Federal Aviation Administration providing information to the Pentagon. The Pentagon is preparing two new portals for submission, one for historical sightings from current or former government employees, and a second for public submissions of new reports. Coming up, is Twitter leading the European market? Elon Musk reportedly plans to pull out. Find out why. And a call for release after Beijing arrested a Japanese employee under the regime's widened anti-espionage law. We'll have the details soon when we return.
Back to the news. What are the impacts of China's potential intellectual property theft on the United States? And just why are IP rights so crucial for a business? Here with us live to discuss that is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, obviously IP rights are very important, but put it in layman's terms for, for us. Why is that? Okay, uh, so IP rights are crucial for businesses for several reasons here. And first and foremost is that it protects uh, the innovations uh, that are in your products. And this is key because this gives businesses the incentive to invest in research and development because uh, they, know, they know their ideas will be safeguarded. It prevents uh, unauthorized copying or counterfeiting. And it gives a business you know, exclusive rights to their intellectual property and can give uh, the business a competitive advantage, which can lead to increased market share as well and more profits. So you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a win-win scenario for businesses and consumers because when companies have the incentive to innovate, uh, we as consumers get better products, right? Um, so you know, IP rights are important for everybody here. And I think the part of uh, IP rights that is very relevant to our discussion today in particular because you know, we're talking about China uh, is that IP rights offer protection beyond national borders as well. Uh, they help maintain control over products and services in different countries. You know, this, this helps prevent international copying. So what are the impacts of China's potential intellectual property theft on the United States? So IP theft can result in you know, substantial economic losses for American businesses and industries. When Chinese entities steal American uh, innovations, inventions, technology, trade secrets, you know, they, they can then produce those products at a cheaper price. You know, I mean, China's known for its cheap labor, right? So with uh, stolen, sto stolen technologies, uh, inventions and innovations, Chinese companies then can create uh, similar products without the substantial investments and research uh, and development costs that the original inventors incurred. And this means that the American businesses that invested uh, in these innovations lose out on sales and market share. And as revenues decline, Steph, businesses may be forced to cut costs. Uh, and one common cost-cutting measure is to reduce the workforce. And sometimes it could even put companies out of business. So, you know, this is obviously unfair for the U.S. But, you know, on top of that, IP theft could also have national security implications. Uh, this is because certain technologies and innovations are cr critical to U.S. defense and security as well. Um, intellectual property involves military or defense-related technologies sometimes. So when China gains access to these technologies, it can then use them to potentially advance China's military forces. Thank you so much, John. Great to hear all that. Yeah, thank you. The explosion came just before Biden's trip to Israel. Here to discuss is Gerard Felitti, senior counsel at the Lawfare Project. This pro bono legal service aims to protect the civil and human rights of the Jewish people. Gerard Felitti, thank you for joining us again. The White House National Security Council person said this afternoon that Israel is not responsible for the hospital explosion in Gaza on Tuesday, just yesterday. Hamas, of course, has blamed Israel from the outset. 
What evidence do we have to determine who's responsible here? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. We have a number of, uh, of points of evidence, one of which is our own surveillance satellites, which were able to look at uh, the blast and see what happened. We also have intelligence from the Israeli government. We have flight paths of the rockets. We know exactly when they were fired at 6.50 p.m. local time, exactly when the hospital was hit. We know that Israel was not operating in the airspace at that time, conducting any sort of raid. And we know by process of elimination that the only thing it could have been was a Hamas missile, or in this case, a Palestinian Islamic Jihad missile. Uh, they're in this as well. And now the other part of it is looking at images of the explosion itself. We don't have the cratering that we would normally have if this were an Israeli bomb. Rather, we're looking at what easily was a misfired uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket. Now, Gerard, Hamas is using the explosion to spread anti-Israel propaganda. Talk to, us, uh, talk to us about the media perception and the narrative fallout from this event, this explosion. Unfortunately, this is not the first time that we've seen Hamas trying to exploit suffering of civilians that it causes itself in order to go after Israel. This is part of a long-standing propaganda war against Israel to portray them as an aggressor and Hamas as a victim when they are, in fact, a terrorist oppressor. So they are leveraging their contacts in media in the West, unfortunately getting even through to institutions like The New York Times and CNN to push the narrative that somehow Israel was responsible and to develop outrage against Israel and by extension against Jews everywhere. And we're seeing that. We're seeing the practical effects of Jews being targeted on the streets of Europe, the U.S., and the Middle East. Now, as we're talking about, there's really two wars. There are two wars going on here, the kinetic war and the information war. How serious is fighting the information aspect of this war? Well, the information aspect of this war is crucial. This is the first time that we've seen what Hamas actually does. We saw images put out by Hamas itself last week of the atrocities that they were committing. This is something that's new to most people. They didn't know or they were not aware that this is what terrorists do, although we've seen ISIS and Al-Qaeda and other groups do this. So getting that information public to, to get people to condemn Hamas and to get unity in fighting them is crucial. And even now, however, Hamas is fighting back. They're trying to put out propaganda. They're trying to discredit Israel. Uh, and this time, I think that they're doing so with limited success. But unfortunately, we're not only looking at Hamas, we're looking at state actors that back Hamas. We saw reports last week that the Chinese government is helping with propaganda efforts on behalf of Hamas. We see Iran involved as well. So this is a multi-front war indeed and multiple actors involved. Now, Gerard, let's look at Biden's visit to President Biden's recent visit to the Middle East. He was scheduled to meet with Arab leaders in Jordan, uh, but the meeting was canceled after Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas uh, withdrew in protest of the hospital explosion we were talking about before. What's the significance of this cancellation? It's, it's, it, in all honesty, it's not that significant. Mahmoud Abbas is in a difficult position. He is seeing that his popularity as a legitimate leader of Palestinians is waning because Hamas is increasing in popularity, um, ironically enough, because of their perverse actions in Israel. So he is posturing for the sake of maintaining his position as, as a spokesperson of the Palestinian people. But the real diplomacy was being done last week by Secretary of State Blinken. He was going from capital to capital, trying to dissuade uh, involvement by other countries in this, uh, in this 
this, what we're looking at as a war between Israel and Gaza. The fact that Joe Biden didn't have the opportunity to visit with King Abdullah or to with other leaders to discuss the situation is more a PR uh, stunt, if you will, for these leaders to show their people that they care about Palestinians. But ultimately, it's not as meaningful as what happens behind closed doors at the ministerial level. All right, Gerard Feliti, thank you again for being on the show. No, thank you for having me. A longtime State Department official resigned his post over White House policy on the Israel-Hamas conflict. That's right. Josh Paul was the director of Congressional and Public Affairs since 2012. In a statement on LinkedIn, he said the Middle East policy would cause deeper suffering for the people of Israel and Palestine. Paul told the Huffington Post he believes U.S. support of Israel's response to the conflict is not in the long-term interests of the United States. He condemned the Hamas attack as, quote, a monstrosity of monstrosities, but also cited concerns that Iran-linked groups would exploit the situation. Paul said he debated in the past what he called controversial arms sales, but said it was clear there was no arguing on the current Israel policy. The European Parliament today voted for a humanitarian pause in Gaza. The legislative body condemned Hamas's attacks and recognized Israel's right to defend itself in compliance with international law. Politics is also daring to speak out loud and clearly what we really want to ask. Look at the images. Look at what is happening. The people are asking for a humanitarian pause. Members called for the immediate release of all hostages kidnapped by Hamas as well. The EU Parliament is asking for more humanitarian assistance for Gaza. Lawmakers also called for an independent investigation into the hospital blast in the Gaza Strip. Israel says Palestinian Islamic Jihad fired the rocket that hit the hospital. Hamas said Thursday that an Israeli airstrike killed a top leader in the house, the head of the terrorist organization's national security forces, and his family members. A group of Republican senators are demanding that aid for Israel and Ukraine be allocated in separate bills. They sent a letter to the upper chamber's leadership. The letter comes as the Biden administration is expected to request $100 billion in aid. Those funds would go toward supporting Taiwan as well. Several Senate Republicans also want stronger policies to address illegal immigration at the southern border as part of any funding deal. And now some short headlines from around the world. First, new policies for immigrants and asylum seekers entering Europe may be coming. Ministers from across the European Union today advocating for stronger screening. They also said the union must quickly expel those deemed a security risk. That's after the war in the Middle East and terrorist attacks in Brussels and France. To carefully assess all possible consequences for us in the European Union. This entails the protection of our Jewish communities, but also a protection against the generalized uh, climate of Islamophobia that has no place in our society. Just this week, attackers tried throwing Molotov cocktails at a Jewish synagogue in Berlin. France had to evacuate several airports due to threats of attacks. In Belgium, a Tunisian man shot three people, killing two of them. France has now banned pro-Palestinian rallies. Germany has promised to take tougher action against Hamas. 
Israeli and U.S. embassies in Argentina are receiving bomb threats this week. Both embassies are located in Buenos Aires, the, the nation's capital. Both embassies received the bomb threats via email. Fortunately, the threats received on Wednesday were false alarms. Officials said they were on high alert as the South American country has suffered terrorist attacks in the past. Meanwhile, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak met with Israel's president today. The British Prime Minister expressed his nation's support and solidarity with Israel. He also called the Hamas attack a barbaric act of terrorism. We should call it what it is, an act of terrorism perpetrated by an evil terrorist organization, Hamas. That's what I believe, mm -hmm. and that's what we will continue to say. And in that vein, we will stand with Israel. The UK is pushing Egypt to open the Rafah border crossing between Gaza and Egypt. That's to allow aid to get in and foreign nationals to leave. After a visit by President Biden on Wednesday, Israel said it had agreed to allow humanitarian aid, limited humanitarian aid, into Gaza. Biden said Egypt had agreed to open the crossing to up to 20 trucks. Sunak will also hold talks with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu before traveling to other regional capitals. Back in France, prosecutors raided the headquarters of the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. The country's national financial prosecutor conducted the raid. The Olympic organization said it handed over all requested information and that they're fully cooperating with the investigation. And lastly, will there be no more Twitter in Europe? Elon Musk is reportedly considering removing his platform, which is now called X, from the market. That's over a new law in the European Union called the Digital Services Act. It has rules which are meant to prevent the spread of harmful content. They also ban or limit certain users' targeting practices and more. Musk has historically been against such measures, describing himself as a free speech absolutist. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza is growing. Palestinians are especially desperate for clean water. What happens to the human body when it's dehydrated? And how did Gaza get in this situation? NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest on the crisis. People in Gaza are desperate for clean running water. Then performance becomes impaired, dizziness, faintness. You get a rapid, thready pulse, rapid, shallow breathing. Possibly because you're now hyperventilating, that's associated with pins and needles through the fingertips and around the mouth. So why are Gazans without water? In 2021, Gaza reported that about 6% of their water came from Israel. About 4% came from Gaza's own desalination plants, and about 90% came from ground wells. Now Israel has cut off the flow of water it provides until Hamas returns the nearly 200 hostages it took. Israel has also cut off electricity which can power Gaza's own desalination plants. Israel supplies about 50% of Gaza's electricity. As for the other half, Hamas has reportedly taken the fuel for desalination plants and used it for terrorist purposes. And that 90% of water from ground wells isn't making it to Gazan civilians in drinkable form. Instead of investing in infrastructure and wastewater treatment, Hamas works on its military capabilities. Hamas also establishes missile launchers and bases near critical infrastructure, so that when Israel targets Hamas, power plants and water treatment facilities are also hit. Those trapped in the Strip are running out of time. In a short period of time, 
the skin appears to shrink, become shriveled, the lips uh, can disappear or retract and start to reveal the gums, and the limbs become shrunken, scrawny. Israel has briefly turned on its water supply, but only in the south of Gaza. This is to encourage civilians to relocate away from the anticipated ground offensive in the north, while Hamas encourages civilians to stay and potentially become martyrs. Death normally intervenes, although it's very much dependent on how much activity, how much water conservation goes on, but death normally intervenes within about three days. Israel has agreed to allow international aid like food and water into Gaza, under pressure from President Biden, but under the condition that it doesn't end up in the hands of Hamas. For now, Gazans are relying on limited stores of bottled water, homegrown desalination plants, and hoping that aid can make it to them. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And next up, we'll hear more updates from around Asia. The Taliban is looking for, to formally join China's Belt and Road Initiative. While attending a summit in Beijing, a Taliban official said the regime would send a technical team to China for further talks. Beijing has sought to develop ties with the Taliban, although no country has officially recognized the group since it took over Afghanistan in 2021. Last month, China became the first country to appoint an ambassador to the Afghan capital, Kabul, since the Taliban took power. Japan welcomed Australian Defense Minister Richard Marles in Tokyo. The two sides emphasized their strong military amid China's growing military presence in the Indo-Pacific region. Marles told Japan's defense minister that the relationship with Japan is fundamental to Australia's future national security plans. Um, we are both allies of the United States. We both have a complex relationship, relationship with, with our, our largest trading partner, China. China. Um, we have a deep relationship with each other over a long period of time uh, here in uh, the East Asian time zone. Our next goal is to improve our substantial cooperation to ensure that Japan and Australia will be ready to work together in emergencies arising in the region. Last year, Australia and Japan signed the Reciprocal Access Agreement. It's the first such defense pact Japan signed with a country other than the U.S. Talks between top diplomatic and defense officials from the two countries were planned for Friday, however. They were postponed due to the situation in the Middle East. Meanwhile, Tokyo is demanding that Beijing release an arrested Japanese employee of Astellas Pharma. Japan's chief cabinet secretary said Beijing formally arrested the man in mid-October. He lived in China for two decades and was detained in March this year on charges of alleged espionage. China's new espionage law came into effect in July. It broadens the definition of espionage, prompting concern among foreign companies operating in China. Staying in Japan, researchers from the International Atomic Energy Agency paid a visit to a fish harbor near the Fukushima nuclear power plant. There they were taking samples of fish and seawater. This was the first sampling since Japan began releasing treated wa wastewater in August. They were accompanied by scientific observers from China, South Korea, and Canada. The samples will be sent to labs in each country for independent testing. A comprehensive IAEA report will follow. Japan has tested the fish and said they are safe. 
Across the seas of Japan, Russia's foreign minister is meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Pyongyang. Moscow has not disclosed the details of the meeting, but the Russian official had earlier thanked North Korea for supporting Russia's war in Ukraine. The visit is thought to be a prelude to a visit by President Vladimir Putin. The South Korean president has big meetings coming up, too. He's set to, to travel to Saudi Arabia and Qatar next week. The focus of his trip will include business cooperation, the Israel-Hamas conflict, and possible humanitarian aid. Business leaders, including from Samsung, will also go. Coming up, a small vacuum, a brush, and a soft cloth. That's what it takes to keep Michelangelo's David clean. The restorationist says it's a great honor. And sparkling wine is replacing French champagne to become the drink of choice for British celebrations. More shortly here on NTD News Today. People flock to Florence from all over the world to see Michelangelo's David. But those who maintain the sculpture get a more intimate look. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on that one. Michelangelo's David has cobwebs in his curls and lint between his toes. It's time for a dusting. We are doing a dusting, which is a very important thing. It's part of the ordinary preservation of artwork that we do, not only on David, but on every work in this museum. And this is an effective way to monitor the works and to know if they are doing well. Standing at more than 15 feet tall and weighing more than six tons, David is considered to be one of the greatest pieces of Renaissance art. The sculpture draws 1.7 million visitors to Italy each year. It's obviously very important to dust off the statues so as to not see the lint, which is something that obviously no one would like to see in a museum. David is certainly the sculpture that attracts the most attention. Restorer Eleonora Pucci spends at least six hours on scaffolding, using a small electric vacuum, brush and a soft cloth. Dust and filaments are found, and the most curious thing are these little spiders that are always found on the curls between David's hair, where they create these cobwebs. In between dustings, they find refuge there. Pucci says cleaning the David is always a moving experience. There is always great emotion and, above all, a great honor to be able to work on every work of art, all the more so for Michelangelo's David, which I think is the best-known sculptural work in the world. So it's a great honor. Michelangelo would be pleased. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Throughout centuries, the British have marked their celebrations with French champagne. However, as vineyards thrive in the hills of southern England, domestically produced sparkling wine is increasingly becoming the preferred beverage. Let's take a look. English sparkling wine is no longer a joke. With vineyards now dotted across hills in southern England and sustainability concerns growing, local fizz is emerging as the drink of choice for many Britons. England is the newest New World wine region. It's a wine region that's being born right now. And that only happens once. For hundreds of years, Britons have celebrated by drinking French champagne. And the UK is still the world's second biggest importer of champagne. 
But rising temperatures in recent decades have provided better growing conditions for grapes in England. At the same time, rising concerns about carbon emissions is leading many British consumers to opt for local produce over imports where they can. These trends are creating huge momentum for English wine. Josh Donaghy Spire is the head winemaker at Wine Estate Chapel Down. There's so much demand for English wine, we just cannot keep up with demand. Viticulture is now Britain's fastest growing agricultural sector. And with more than 900 vineyards in England, the UK is planting vines quicker than most of the world's biggest wine-producing countries. What we've been able to do is to, to make world-class traditional method sparkling wines, which have won excellent international awards. That has brought investment, which has enabled us to acquire better land, as you can see, to, to employ better people, to have better equipment and machinery, to grow better grapes, make better wine, win more awards and more confidence, and that virtuous circle is just, is just continuing at the moment. Britain is forecast to produce 22 million bottles of wine a year by 2023, a sharp rise from about 12 million bottles in 2022. That's according to industry body WineGB. And foreign companies don't want to miss out. Two of France's best-known champagne houses, Tatinga and Pommery, have bought land in England stressing the geological similarities of southern England's chalky slopes to those of its French home region, English winemakers are going after Champagne's market. The size of the sparkling wine market in the UK is huge and growing. So we are really confident about the future of our business. English sparkling wine represents just a tiny fraction of the sparkling wine that we drink here in the UK. And we believe there's a lot of growth to happen here. If you're a T-Mobile customer, you're advised to take a close look at your next phone bill. The major wireless carrier is running a test in which it automatically switches some customers to more expensive rate plans. The change affects customers on older unlimited plans such as T-Mobile One, Simple Choice, and Magenta 55 Plus. All of those customers will be migrated to T-Mobile's 5G network plan, which starts at $75 per month per phone line. T-Mobile users will have the option to keep their current plan or opt out of the new one by calling customer service. T-Mobile became America's second largest cell phone service provider after taking over Sprint, pledging not to raise prices for three years at the time. Rivals AT&T and Verizon raised rates on their older plans last year. People are leaving too many love locks at the Grand Canyon. That's the message from the National Park Service. Wow, yeah, they say that it's dangerous for wildlife. Visitors will often leave padlocks on the fences as a way to symbolize their love for another person. The key is then thrown into the canyon. But officials noted on Facebook that it's actually littering and is dangerous for wildlife. Condors, in particular, are attracted to shiny objects and will often eat them. The post included an x-ray showing coins lodged into the digestive tract of a condor, and they had to be removed by surgery. Incredible. But the post also added that most birds aren't so lucky, and they could die if they eat too many foreign metal objects. Steph, did you know that love locks can actually be found on bridges um, all over the world, like New York, 
Paris, Florence. Wow, incredible. I know that there, I've heard that it's popular in China. I know there, there are some in Australia. But did you know that they actually, aside from wildlife, can be dangerous to humans? I heard that there was a bridge in Paris that actually collapsed because there are just too many love locks on them. Whoa, that's a lot of love. That is a lot of love. You know, I was in Florence in 2010 studying art, actually. Right. Um, and they must have not have this law in place then. There's now a, f a, f a fine, 50 euro fine in Florence if you put a love lock on a bridge. Perhaps there were plenty of love locks then. <laughs> right, okay. All right. That's all well, for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.